Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 as we continue through our study in the book of Romans. While we in America continue to struggle with what legally and morally constitutes the family unit, Paul's first century readers understood family very well. The Roman familia with its pater familias or head of the family deeply ingrained in their minds. We're going to see Paul appeal to the Roman family to make an absolutely incredible claim to Christians who find themselves in God's family. And so look at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Paul said we are debtors. Now, there is something we owe, something we're obligated to pay. But there's also a creditor that tries to collect to whom we have no obligation. This wasn't the first time Paul used the term debtor. It might help us to understand who or what we ought to be in debt to. In the first chapter of Romans, we read this. Romans 1, beginning in verse 14. Paul said, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul thought of himself as having a debt to pay. He was talking about his calling as an apostle. This obligation arose from the favor that God had shown him in appointing him to this important work. He was specially chosen as a vessel to bear the gospel to the Gentiles, and he would not feel that he had discharged the obligation until he had made the gospel known as far as possible among all the nations of the earth. And so that was the uh, positive debt that Paul believed that he owed, and he was glad to pay it. There's also a debt we should not pay in verse 12, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, as we press forward in the Christian life, we're hindered by a disturbing creditor. It's the flesh we've been talking about throughout It's that principle within us that tends towards satisfying natural lusts or natural um, desires in sinful ways. Like any creditor who hasn't been paid, the flesh seems to bother us and harass us all the time at home, at work, in school. Uh, You know, some of you have had creditors call. Uh, sometimes it's a mistake, sometimes it's not. Christians go through hard financial times. I know it's hard to believe, you know, because, but uh, I've known Christians over the years that have really difficult financial times. And, uh, man, when those creditors start to call, they're just, they're just it's crazy. Uh, we get, uh, the other way you get calls, my wife keeps getting calls for Carlos on her telephone. You ever do that? You get a new telephone number? And uh, for, for two and a half years, she's been getting calls for Carlos. I, really, I, I want to find Carlos and make him pay his bills. You know, they, oh yeah, we'll take you off the list, but they, they never do. Uh, and so uh, the flesh is a, is a debtor like that. Now, we no longer owe anything to the flesh. It, is no longer have, it no longer has a valid claim on us. Why not? Well, according to what we've been reading... Death cancels your obligations to creditors. My death with Jesus Christ canceled any obligations I have to satisfy my flesh. When you're tempted by the flesh to give in to its demands, you can tell yourself you're under no obligation. You can ignore its demands because you're dead to it. Verse 13, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, in what sense will you die if you live according to the flesh? Well, here are a couple of different ways that we might understand this. Number one, Paul might be reminding us that before we were saved, we had no choice but to live according to the flesh. Uh, We were uh, physically alive but spiritually dead and uh, all we had was a soulish kind of activity and we were living according to the flesh. We were headed toward death. We were going to die physically and then we would die a second death at the great white throne judgment. We would then have been cast alive for eternity into the lake of fire. And so uh, we uh, die if we live according to the flesh. Uh, Paul might also secondly be telling us that when we as Christians are debtors to the flesh in what we bring forth through our lives, it kills rather than blesses. It is dead work. So when we give in to the flesh and we pay that debt, as it were, that we don't really owe, uh, then it brings forth death. When the flesh calls demanding to be paid by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. You follow the influences and the impulses of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You refuse to do the deeds the flesh is demanding. Uh, I like what Francis Chan said because we've been approaching Romans kind of a little bit like that. Like last week's study, we just were taking the scripture at face value. It said, your body is dead. And so when the flesh calls, uh, as it were, and says, I want this debt satisfied, you said, yeah, hey, I'm dead. I don't need to give in to that. Uh, I'm just going to move on from there. So we don't need five principles to memorize. We don't need to do it. We just need to realize that God has said we're dead to that. We're not in debt to that. We don't have to give in to that. And we refuse because as we saw last time, the Holy Spirit who is in us is powerful. We think of the outcome of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit as doubtful when in reality the flesh is no match for the spirit. All we need to do is yield to the Spirit uh, and we have our champion. Uh, you, you know, We love to think in terms of the yin and the yang, of the, of the good side of the force and the evil side of the force. You know, and which way is Luke really going to go? And is there good in Darth Vader? You know, all that kind of stuff. We love that, that equality of good versus evil. And, and in reality, the Holy Spirit says, and last week we see, he said, hey, I'm the guy who rose Jesus from the dead. I can handle your flesh. Just don't give in to it, listen to me, yield to my influences, and we'll walk with God together. You can put yourself back in debt to the flesh if you want to, uh, but you don't have to. You will live, Paul said, he was talking about really living, living the way God intended for man to live. To describe the kind of living Paul meant, he drew from an analogy his readers would understand perfectly but we really don't. It's, it's not that we're ignorant. It's just uh, we don't understand exactly what he means here. He compared believers to children who were adopted into the Roman familia, which is a very kind of a unique adoption uh, system different than we are used to. And so, I mean, I'm, if you're like me, I read these words, and when I read the word adoption, I, I, norm, I immediately think of, whatever kind of adoption I'm familiar with in the United States or in the world today, when I read about family and comparisons, I compare to my own family. And I have to understand that Paul was talking to his readers in first century Rome about a very unique 
uh, family system um, and a very unique kind of adoption that we have historical record for. So he says in verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, he wasn't suggesting you cease to be a son of God if you yield to the flesh rather than being led by the Spirit of God. He's not saying you're only a son of God when you're led by the Spirit. No, he's saying that since you have God the Holy Spirit in you and can be led by Him, it's evidence that you are sons of God in a very special sense. And he gives you that very special sense of sonship. Man, that's a mouthful. It's like Peter Piper pecked a something. <coughs> he picked, yeah. Or he pecked. Uh, he gives you that very special sense of sonship in the next verse. Verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I found a very informative article on Roman adoption. Let me give you the highlights. In Rome, the patria potestas was the father's power over his family. Now, dads, you're going to like this. That power was absolute. It was actually the power of absolute disposal and control. And in the early days, it was actually the power of life and death. In adoption, a person had to pass from one patria potestas to another. He had to pass out of the possession and control of one father into the equally absolute control and possession of another. There were two steps. The first was known as mansipatio, and it was carried out by a symbolic sale in which copper and scales were symbolically used. Three times the symbolism of sale was carried out. Twice the father symbolically sold his son, and twice he bought him back, the third time he did not buy him back, and thus the patria potestas was held to be broken. After the sale, there followed a ceremony called vindicatio. The fa adopting father went to a praetor, one of the Roman magistrates, and presented a legal case for the transference of the person to be adopted into his patria potestas. When all this was completed, the adoption was complete. And so there was this process, uh, you know, very, very different because... The, the father was seen as almost an absolute sovereign in that society. And there were four main consequences of adoption. Number one, the adopted person lost all rights to his old family and he gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family. In the most literal sense and in the most legally binding way, he got a new father. Second, it followed that he became heir to his new father's estate. Even if other sons were afterward born who were real blood relations, it did not affect the adopted son's rights. He was inalienably co-heir with them. Third, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. Legally, all debts were canceled. They were wiped out as though they had never existed. The adopted person was regarded as a new person entering into a new life with which the past had nothing to do. And fourth, in the eyes of the law, the adopted person was literally and absolutely the son of the new father. And so it was uh, a very, very secure legal situation in which after you went through all of this, what we would call rigmarole, uh, it was as if you were the natural born son of that new father. 
Your old life didn't exist anymore. Your old debts didn't exist anymore. If you had any, if you were adopted later in life, you had no ties or claims to your old family whatsoever, neither did they to you. You had full rights and privileges in the new family as if you had been born into it. And if you study some of the history, I didn't want to go into it tonight, but some of the Caesars uh, adopted one another and did some crazy things to, to get into positions of power in the Roman system. This is the system Paul had in mind when he said, you were adopted. Once we were in the absolute possession and power of sin and death, but God adopted us as we were. He brought us into an entirely new way of living, our old way of life, indeed our old life, has no claim upon us anymore. Debts were canceled and instead we inherit all, inherit all the things that are pertaining to our Heavenly Father. The word bondage in verse 15 is suggested by the analogies of a Roman household as well. Those in bondage were the household slaves. Paul contrasted the adopted son with the household slaves. He said, you did not receive the spirit of bondage. That means you are not a fearful slave in God's household of faith. And so looking at what we know about the Roman family, Paul says, you're not a household slave, uh, you know, in, in the sense that, that God is your master uh, ruling over you in that sense. No, you've been moved from a sphere, one sphere of living to another. You are the adopted son. You have full privileges in the house. Uh, yes, your father is still sovereign over you, absolutely, uh, but you're a son, you're not a slave, and you're a son in this Roman sense in which if someone were to knock at your door and say, hi, you owe me $500, you say, no, I don't, because I now am in this family. You're talking about a person who legally doesn't exist anymore. Well, no, I have your name right here. You signed this paper. Yeah, I was adopted. I went through the process of going from one you know, father to the other father, and legally you have no claim on me. And, and that was binding. It would be taken into account during that whole process. It was as if that old person never existed anymore. You know all these movies where people are living happily, and then all of a sudden the knock comes at their, I know who you are, I know what you did. And then they, have, you know, they end up in this clandestine world where they have to do things because they're being blackmailed. That didn't happen in Rome. They just say, yeah, get out of here. Legally, you don't have anything on me. You can't do anything about that. And so, Paul, this is a much uh, stronger understanding of adoption than I've ever had before. Canceling out your previous life. In Roman society, nobody went looking. For, and I'm not put, I, This is great. If you want to do this, that's fine. This has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But nobody went looking for their, you know, for their parents. If they were adopted, as they just they, that mindset didn't exist. It was like this is my family. You are my father, even though I wasn't born into this family legally and morally and in every other sense. I belong to this family, and so it's very strong. And so Paul says, "Don't act like you're a slave in the household of God when you're an adopted son." So much of what passes for biblical Christianity is really some sort of fear and slavery. Uh, I'd apply this even today to the current movement we call the emergent church. The emergent church, here's a definition, it's a movement within Christianity to join a multitude of faiths and denominations in what they call a new reformation that challenges the authority of Scripture, the traditional structure and doctrines of the church, 
It discounts prophecy and encourages a socioeconomic agenda above salvation through believing on Jesus Christ. But what you find in the emerging church, what is typical of it, is a return to ritual and ceremony. But that's not how children discover and enjoy their dads, is it? Is it really through ritual and ceremony? Uh, Only the weird dads. You know, only the stories where my dad made me do this and he made me do that and I had to call him this and, you know, and I, I never remember him ever showing me any tenderness or kindness or love. I, I guess my dad loved me, but I wasn't sure and all of that. No, I mean, so, so here we are, we're Christians. Paul says, you're adopted into a new household. You're sons. You know, you have all these full privileges. And so we look at that and we think, okay, well, how about we get into all these weird rituals then and act like God is like a hundred miles from us and we have to go through a labyrinth sideways to try and find him because he has hidden himself from us as any good father would. And so it's not an advance to return to rituals and ceremonies. It's a retreat into a relationship of bondage and fear. It's interesting how easily we can be fooled. We look at things like that and say, oh, this is going to set me free to worship God in a whole new way that I've never worshipped Him before, this ritual and ceremony and lighting of candles and all of this kind of stuff. And in reality, it's, it's putting you back into bondage. It's not a freedom at all. It's a slavery. Yours is a full and fully privileged relationship. You cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an endearing expression of intimacy. I experienced that this morning at 4.30 a.m. We were watching little Gene, the littlest Gene. We had him overnight, and he's a, good, he's a great sleeper. Uh, but we had him, and, and you know, we, we leave the doors open because I'm a paranoid grandpa, you know. I think, you know, mercenaries are going to break in or something like that. So we have the doors open. So I get up, Wednesday's an early morning because we have the men's thing. And so I got up and I was walking down the hall. And I don't know if it was my laborious walking or Momo, our dog, who's shaking with, you know, and making all that collar noise and stuff. But as I walked by, uh, Gino was in his crib and he popped up and he goes, Baba! Papa! And he started yelling, Papa! And then I had to grab him, you know. And then he goes, Momo! Momo! You know, and we just had about ten minutes of just, you know, I changed his diaper. And then he went back to sleep again, which was a real blessing. Uh, you know, but, but uh, you know, he didn't have to approach me in any kind of a ritual, ritualistic manner or anything like that. And, and neither did I want him to. Of course, he's little, but as he gets older, the same thing. And then father is an expression of full adoption. And so I have a, I've been fully adopted by a powerful father, the head of an amazing household, to whom I address, uh, whom I address as Abba, or Daddy, in an endearing way. Uh, and, uh, you know, even before the recent popularity of the emergent church movement, there's always been a movement towards greater formalism in the church. And, and um, we don't prefer being casual because we're cool or... We think it's cooler than people who are formal. Uh, I reject formalism because it's formal. Because my relationship with God is, a, is an intimate, personal relationship, not a formal relationship. If you, if you really dig having a formal relationship with God, then praise the Lord. I, I, 
that's just you, I guess, and maybe those kinds of churches appeal to people like that. But, uh, you know, I, I as a father don't want to have a formal relationship with my children or my grandchildren, and uh, I just think that's kind of strange. I want to have a loving, endearing, intimate relationship. Uh, you know, now that I'm a grandfather, I want my daughter to correct me because I'm teaching my granddaughter weird things, you know, and stuff. And that's one of the most fun things in my life is when Mary corrects me. I love it. She goes, Dad, quit doing that. She's going to be up all night. And I go, bah, you know, and stuff. Whatever it is, you know, and I'm always doing something that gets me in trouble. But uh, I, I want to be that kind of grandfather. And God wants to be that kind of father to you. He's intimate with you. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, look, I used to call you servants, but now guess what, guys? You're my friends. And we're learning about the friendship with God as we see Abraham. This Sunday, sneak peek, this Sunday... When Abraham, he comes back from the battle, you know, the, of the armies and all that, and he's afraid and he's distressed and stuff. Uh, God comes to him. Abraham doesn't even go to God. God finds him and says, hey, Abraham, I need to talk to you. I want to minister to you, tell you you uh, need not be afraid because I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. You know, and there's nothing wrong. We, you know, we always talk about seeking the Lord, going to our devotions, finding the Lord. You know, he's waiting for you. But God isn't always waiting for you. Sometimes he's finding you. When you're not wanting to be found, when you're despondent and in distress, he comes and finds you. He found Abraham. He said, Abraham, what's going on here? I need to talk to you. Don't you understand? I am your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. Uh, It's a beautiful thing that God wants to have this fellowship with us. He came every day to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. And I don't think that they were busy all day memorizing the names of plants. So that he'd say, okay, what, what are the names of the plants? I want the phylum name and the genus. I want everything down to That's wrong! You know, and so he, they enjoyed the plants. Except for the figs. Just leave those alone. But uh, anyway, it was cool. So that's the kind of... So Paul is saying, guys, you know, you have the Holy Spirit to defeat the flesh. And you, if you want to understand how strong your relationship is with the Father through the Spirit... Look at the Roman family. It's as if you've been adopted into an entirely new family that is uh, much better than your old family. And so in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We're the children of God. The presence of God the Holy Spirit in us bears witness with our regenerated spirit that all these things are true. Now since all this is true, then why is it sometimes we misunderstand or even refuse to be led by the Spirit? Well, one answer is that we are still on the earth. We're still in the household of faith. We're not yet home with the Lord. And so verse 17 addresses the tension between what we are and where we are. Verse 17, we're children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. An adopted child was a full heir of the future inheritance. Since God is our father, we are heirs of God. We're going to inherit heaven and all that goes along with it for all eternity. All of this made possible, of course, by Jesus Christ when He came to earth as God in human flesh. Jesus, in His humanity, still looks forward to receiving the full inheritance promised Him for His sacrifice on the cross. In the Revelation we read, this is Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's 
way future to us, way into the tribulation period, that that's going to happen. And so Jesus has yet to receive this full inheritance. It's in the future. In the Revelation, we find how Jesus receives his full inheritance and we along with him. In order to claim the kingdoms of this world as his own, Jesus suffered as a man. We can expect no less. We suffer now in God's household of faith on the earth, but we will be glorified in the future. It's in the suffering, it's in the distress, it's in the tragedy, it's in the difficulty. That's what interferes with our receiving the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Or I should say, it is what we allow to interfere, thinking that suffering is somehow a strange thing for the believer. It's not. It is our portion now, and we should understand that. Uh, and so suffering kind of knocks us off our game. That's one of the things that does it, Paul says. He says, you're, you're heirs, you're sons, you've got this adoption. Uh, and then just when you're thinking it's all fun and games, you get back, you know, you get pulled back to earth, as it were, and, and you realize that things are rough down here. And, and, and there's a struggle going on. But here's, here's a good example. When Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit, he called him another comforter. That's a great word, right? The comforter. Another like him who would comfort us. Let me ask you this. When do you need a comforter? Is it when you're on top of the world? I mean, do people come up to you and put their arms around you and say, let me comfort you when you've just caught a 28-pound fish or, you know, when your team just won the Super Bowl or whatever. I mean, when you, when you just got the promotion, when you have all the money you need, when you just bought the Corvette, you know, when all these things are just cranking out, is that when you feel like you need another comforter? No. You need a comforter when you're uncomfortable, when there are problems in your life. So Jesus, you know, in that wonderful promise, he's promising you trouble. He says, you're going to have trouble. And he does later on, you know, he says, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And I'm going to send you a comforter who will walk with you through those times and remind you of all of these things. Sometimes we're too comfortable to need a comforter. And then we, we get knocked off our game when something bad happens uh, or what we would put in the category of bad, it's like, oh, what's going on? God doesn't love me anymore. God is distant from me. And we forget uh, these things. The very designation of the Holy Spirit indicates we will be uncomfortable in this life as we journey homeward. We don't need to go out of our way to be uncomfortable. It'll come to you. It'll find you. Uh, but... Uh, the Holy Spirit is there living inside you, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Your body is dead, we learned last week. You don't need to yield to the flesh. You have the full privileges of sonship. We're the adopted sons and daughters of God, heirs with Christ, joint heirs of all the things that He will inherit. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Adoption's big.